Hello and welcome to another extra special, completely curricular episode of Normandy FM Near Replicant Edition. As always, I'm one of your co-hosts, Eric Van Allen. Joining me here is Kenneth Shepard. Ken, how you doing? You know, I was just thinking. Mm-hmm. Because we, we have been so sporadic in how we have been recording this season, we actually lucked out in that I think for the first time in our the entire show's history, we have a spooky episode during the spooky month. Oh, we do. We do we have a horror episode during the, the month of horror. And joining us is not a horror, but a delight. The one and only Tatum. Tatum, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing pretty good. How are you feeling this this month of horrors? Man, it's my favorite month, if I'm going to be real. It's right after my birthday. It is full of incredible movies like Saw X. Mm-hmm. If, if it's if it's Halloween, it's Saw, you know. Everyone, Yo, everyone, let's derail this whole it. show to talk about Saw 10. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, look, I could use a nap, so if y'all just want to, like, uh, send me a text when you're done, <laughs> that'd be great. As long as we're not talking about the Saw games, that sounds mm-hmm. great. Mm, Normandy FM, the Saw season, but we Shit. only talk about the video game. Only the video game. <laughs> what, what a miserable experience that would be. That'd be incredible. Come on. I, I've long told Ken that we need to embrace the idea of doing a bad video game on here. Which No, I, I do I, agree with that. Y'all should. Like, like, we should pick intentionally bad video games. Like, as a bit. But then it becomes the, a real. A year-long bit. Yeah. I mean, look, many listeners might argue at this point that we've already covered Mass Effect Andromeda, so... Ayo! <laughs> I can feel Ken's animosity from <laughs> through the computer. I wanted to maintain my composure, so like we have the audio clip of you being the only one to laugh at that joke. <laughs> you should know from years of knowing me that I don't care if I'm the only one to laugh as long as I make myself laugh. That's mm-hmm. that's all that matters to me, truly. Uh, before we get into it, Tatum, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how you got into the Near series, what the Near series means to you. I, I legitimately just dissociated for a second and thought mm. I was listening to an episode of mm. of Normandy FM, and I was like, it's "Oh no, wait, we're recording that episode." This is uh, why I don't listen to my own podcasts, so I mm. don't disassociate. <laughs> Good call. Good call. Um, yeah, so I do uh, public relations for video games. Um, I've been doing that for uh, half a decade now, almost, which is a little crazy. Um, and mostly repped a lot of uh, indie games and whatnot, but now I'm on the uh, the side of the AAA side, so now I'm d- working with the wonderful folks at Digital Extremes uh, on games like Warframe, Soulframe, Wayfinder, all that fun stuff. Uh, and for Nier specifically, I have a very weird relationship with, or at least uh, with like getting introduced to Nier. It was very much just like, me and a friend in high school over a summer were uh went to our local rental video place uh called Family Video not Blockbuster uh and we were looking for something to play and he saw near on the shelf and he and we saw Square Enix and we're like oh so this is like an RPG uh but I don't know anything about it and he's like no 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 I have a I have a general idea of what this game is and we need to see it through to the end. So I just sat and watched my friend play through all of Nier, get all of the endings, and by the end of it, I just could not believe what type of game this was because nothing like it had been made at the time because this was like, what, 2010, 2011, mm. something like that. And I... I and And we both, like did not have a good experience through the game because the original version of Nier does not have great combat. Mm. And uh, it, by the end of it, we still couldn't stop thinking about it just because of like all the things that this mm. game tries to do. Uh, and it's, it, obviously we're, we're going to dive into a little bit today, but just to give like a top overview, that that was my first experience with Nier. And then Automata happened and that game made me fall in love with the series and the replicant came out i went and uh into replicant doing every single side quest every bit of content i possibly could and it is now one of my favorite games of all time it really is something about replicant that i feel reframes this game so well and it's 
we might actually want to piece that apart at some point but it is interesting to me that i feel like a lot of fans do come from the avenue of even in having played or, or tried or even enjoyed parts of the original near back when it came out maybe just the world was not ready yet for that thing and then automata no. is what really primed people for for this style of game and, yeah. and i mean like we've talked a bit about it on this podcast too but like i love replicant a lot but Watching Ken play through the first half of this game has especially made me better recognize that this is a very steady, slow burn of a game, mm. even more so, like much more so than I would say Automata is. I, I think Automata does give you like a bit more upfront and, and it segments out those sections a lot more uh, like like ending A is immediately this like big impactful thing, uh, whereas replicant takes a while takes a while to get there <laughs> but i um, think it's good that it takes its time mm, mm -hmm. i think it's one, very purposeful one might even say that uh it taking its time and, and building its cast of characters is what ultimately ends up being a strength that replicant has over automata in the words of one eric van allen here <laughs> I, I would echo that sentiment uh, well, we'll talk more about that, I think, on the next episode, because I think we'll have some things to say about specifically the broader cast and, and their relationships with each other. But we do have one more cast member to add in this episode, because we are talking about the kid in the manor, a.k.a. Emil, for, for those of you at home uh, who are following along with the video game. Uh, we were talking about the episode where, or the segment of the game, I should say, where Nier uh, finds out that Yona's been getting letters from a boy, you know? You know, every every older sibling has to, to keep an eye on their younger sibling. Nier almost serves kind of a parental role for Yona. And there's there's been a boy sending some letters to Yona. What's going on there, Yona? What you doing? <laughs> Who you talking to? <laughs> Who you been texting? And so we're going to go uh, figure out what's up with that because apparently the kid in the manor actually uh, needs some help. But before we did that, I do want to call out something that is uh, very, very near replicant specific. Ken, uh, how did you feel about getting all those weapons? I love to roll across the map until I am at a new place that lets me buy a weapon for a mystery ending, apparently. Mm. Just more time for you to listen to one of the greatest soundtracks of all time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Like It's a... It's a weird, like, goal to have. To have. I mean, I, I guess it's not that weird. Or, like, I mean, there are plenty of games that hide endings and revelations behind collectibles and stuff. So I guess it's not that different. I think the only thing, like, again, like, I I am growing more and more, like, aware of the fact that there's no fast travel in this game when I have to, like, do things that require me to run from one side of the map to the other. And so that part's annoying. And I guess, like, just for my own sake, I'm going to start go into every shopkeeper that I see just to make sure that I've got any weapons that they might be selling so I never have to do what we did just before we got to the manor again. It's strange. It's interesting. Um, so, okay, question. So, okay. Go for it. Go for it. Is the getting all the weapons, is that like is that like a tangible thing that has an effect on this ending that we were trying to unlock? Or is that just like... <laughs> no, no, okay. it's just a thing. <laughs> yeah. That was the thing. It's like, <laughs> is there going to be an ending here where near like sprouts all of these weapons all at once and becomes no, like no this is this Sora is not final fantasy overdrive 15. mode yeah swinging a bunch <laughs> yeah. of swords around yeah no this is not final fantasy 15 this does not magically become like oh like near has all the weapons that he has needed and can now assemble exodia or whatever mm -hmm. like this is i i mean it's a carryover from Drakengard one specifically because i remember i i don't know about the other Drakengard games i've not spent significant enough time with them but Drakengard one also had the same requirement of you needed to get all the weapons and usually that was kind of just a goofy way of making sure that you played very specific plot sections of the game and saw certain pieces of contents um so in for this example one of the weapons that you need to get, you get by doing all of the side stories in the Forest of the Myth. So you see all of the Forest of Myth content. You don't kind of just walk in, walk back out. Um, other examples are kind of a little bit looser because they're ones that you just kind of find 
in the area or you have to go buy them, which just means that you're engaging with the game in some ways. So you're having to do some side quests to build up the cash that you need or whatever. And there are, so there were probably about like seven or eight, I would say that you needed from part one. There are probably about 12 to 14 that you're going to need from part two. That being said, I think that most of them are fairly easy to get and will not take you long to get outside of having to do a few specific side quests that are ones that we would do for the purposes of this podcast anyways, uh, and that I'll probably direct you to at some point uh, in the future when we get there. But mm. yeah, I think that is the most apparent section of this game where it's like this was made in a different time with sure. a different thought process that is uniquely Yoko Taro in a way that I have always kind of wanted to ask Yoko Taro about just to be like, Hey, why'd you do this? What's mm. up with that? I don't even, I don't even, I don't need to publish it. I don't need to like have it out there. Well, I'm people probably have this question, so I would want to publish it in that way. But, um, it does just make me curious, but Ken, I do have some exciting news for you because I mm. completely forgot. I didn't know about this when I played this game and I actually only recently found this out because I was dead sure this didn't exist and now have only just learned that it does actually exist. Uh, there is fast travel in this game. Where and how and It only when? exists in part two. <laughs> so you okay. only just now would have gotten access to it. For those at home, Ken has actually played through to part two as of the recording of, of this section. Has has basically played an episode of he- ahead of where we are because of the way our recording schedule is lining up right now. It's you know how there's the we did the repair the canal section mm-hmm. in the first part of the game in part two. Paul Popola is basically like, hey, that's like open now, but also it closes off after a certain point. You and you do real? and you do want to still like be walking around because there are certain side quests like, like basically the fast travel just serves to get you between major settlements. So it's like very situationally useful. It is there, but it is very situationally useful, which is why I kept saying, like, the boar stuff is a lot more useful in general because you tend to find those guys all around and they do, they haul ass across those planes. They, they, they zip and zoom in a way that rules. Yeah, I was going to oh. say, I don't remember fast travel existing in that game at all. And the only thing I do remember is doing sick drifts on those sick pigs. Sick drifts on the pigs. Yeah, <laughs> That's, it's so good. Um, so, yeah. Anyways, uh, that's all part two stuff that we'll talk about later. Because part one, we have collected the weapons, all but one that we will get during the, the sequence here that we're talking about. Because we are heading to... The mansion, which is kind of the one last major area of near replicant that we have not been to yet. Uh, we've been to the area, we've been to the sea town, we've been to the junk heap, the forest of myth, all the other places, facade, obviously. Um, but we haven't been to the mansion, which is kind of in this weird sequestered off area uh, that you might have run by a few a few times up to now and seen the gate, but haven't been able to go inside. Now we can go in, we can actually get into it. And as we walk in, first of all, like immediately it, it, it shifts in tone as the game kind of dips into black and white. Like mm-hmm. as you walk through the gate, which I always remember being very striking to me the moment that you walk in and everything kind of changes tone. Um, And we meet a Butler at the front and we enter, they, he takes us into a dining hall and, uh, near Weiss and Kaine are waiting around and Kaine just decides to pose up on a couch and be like, uh, give me if something interesting happens, which is just mm, peak Kaine, <laughs> real good Kaine. <laughs> um, and so now you get to kind of explore the mansion and Ken, how would you describe the exploration of this mansion? Uh, I believe the, uh, the initial reaction, like exclamation that I had, while I was playing was a oh, Resident Evil ass. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. As soon as the cameras are in the very uh, original Resident Evil style way, without the uh, without the tank controls, mm-hmm. which was interesting. Like I mean, I, th- I think that was my initial reactions, and I felt the same way with the Forest of Myth. Is that like at the very least, even if I'm not enjoying parts of this game, like at least everything's interesting, everything's fairly distinct, and I think just like walking around the mansion and having. There's like clear homages to 
90s, early 2000s horror video games was interesting, even if, like, there were, like, certain, like, rough edges that maybe made it, like, again, like, made it feel more like an homage than something that was actually, like, being developed around. Because, like, one example that I had here was, um, in, like, the old Resident Evil games, your, like, the, the input you have on your analog stick as you're walking and the camera angle changes, it does not yeah. immediately reorient, yeah. reorient until you let go of the stick. And that was a problem that I definitely noticed here where, okay, I'd be moving toward the camera at one angle and then as soon as it turned uh, to a different angle and Nier was supposed to be moving to, like, say, to the left of the screen, I would still, like, move towards the screen just because, like, they didn't go that extra mile to implement how movement works in those games. So, like, the that was when the, the camera angle stuff feel like more of a, kind of like a, a, a trick, just like a sort of like winking at the camera more than it felt like something they were like designing around. But it was at the very least, like it was interesting. Like it was something that like, oh, it, I, I point at the screen, like, oh, I know what you're doing here. I, I recognize this from all these other games that I've played. So on that front, like it was striking. It was something unlike anything that we had done so far. And I I don't know if it's going to be something that we ever do again. I would like, it would kind of feel like a cheap trick if they do it again. So like, if that's coming, fuck me, I guess. <laughs> uh tatum how do you kind of feel about this this mansion section and how it relates to like the broader gameplay of the game so this is like i feel like a page turn moment for the game and mm. kind of what it's setting out to do and because it was kind of around this moment whenever i had originally kind of gone through the game that i realized that there were kind of like drips and teases of kind of what the thesis of near replicant is and i i personally feel like this is a love letter to game design itself over mm. the past like decade or two and uh and like up until like the 2010s because everything leading up to this point is like kind of either poking fun or kind of just paying homage to certain things like whenever you first go to the junk heap and you fight that robot boss it's like it's got big andros hands and you throw mm -hmm, a mm. bomb in its mouth and even yeah, in that king point, dodongo stuff yeah. yeah exactly and even near is like man this seems familiar like he just outright says it mm. and it's i and i think that's the game like poking fun at some stuff but then you get to this section and even like ken you instantly picked it up you were like oh this is a Resident Evil thing. Mm -hmm. And I know you had a lot of complaints about not being able to dodge roll and stuff whenever combat yeah. happens, but you can't dodge roll in Resident Evil. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is the Resident Evil level. Like the, like from this point out, the, like the, it, uh, I get, so, my tongue is so twisted cause I'm like so excited talking about <laughs> this part of the game. Uh, it's, it's so, amazing to like kind of have this be the puzzle piece to fall into place to like this is what this game is even the like side quest designs that whenever you do end up going out and doing some of the side quests and you can kind of see what those kind of play into that thesis statement of like this love letter to game design you know it's That's... interesting that you well i was gonna say it's interesting that you yeah. point that out because like i it's things that like we'd picked up on across the season where i was like oh yeah this um this boss reminds me of Andros, and then Force of Myth is like very it's like just it, it a text adventure game. Yeah, it's yeah, text adventure it's game, and Zork, it, like, and it yeah. reminds me of like Kakariko Village, and like so that's it's interesting to hear that pointed out as a thing that is intentional because now it makes me curious just to, like you know in terms of like a very literal sense like it weaves it all together because it's all in one world, but like I kind of I'm interested to see like what is the what is the way that the game thematically brings it all together because like I look forward to um like the end of Automata, which is. Like, I'm referring to NME, which, you know, not going to just spoil for something that we're going to get to in, like, eight months. But, like, there is a very, very literal moment where, like, you are fighting the video game to, mm -hmm. and, and, like, breaking people out of that. And I don't, I don't know, like, to what degree it gets that meta in Replicant, but that is, like, interesting to hear that pointed out as a through line through this game. And, like, wonder if that is something that ties in broader to the near mythos, for lack of a better term. I, I, I do want to. I do want to backtrack and say I'm not saying that this is the thesis statement of the game, but I personally like whenever I was playing through it, that is what I felt like. Like sure. I felt like this game was trying to be a window into this era of game design and kind of like put it in a time capsule. Mm. 
I, but I, I think there's some self-evident proof of that though. Like we we talked about some of the examples also like in the junk heap when you're doing that section that's on rails feels very like bullet hell Ikaruga, which yeah. like mm. I think gets expanded on in your automata. Uh, and, and obviously when we get to near automata now, my brain is just like buzzing with all the sections that I'm retroactively going like, Oh, huh? Yeah. If you think of it in that way, it does actually kind of start to line up in, in that sort of thing that this is maybe not even necessarily like a, a time capsule per se, but like an idea of this team is going to tackle all these different ideas and kind of thread them together. And basically you have what is like, like, I don't think I'm getting out of line saying that near as a game is a pretty standard, straightforward, like not overtly complex game. I do think there's some really interesting stuff it does in terms of its upgrade system, in terms of how it handles the the words that you can attach onto things to change their properties and give you different effects. I think that's a really, really cool system, a cool idea and almost directly calls attention to the idea of design because it's it's a very designy thing to be like what verbs does the player have you know how can they change that the idea of modifications to something they do being an adjective and so you are literally attaching adjectives to the verbs that you do in game uh with the words that you pick up from enemies Mm. like it is a very designerly game for lack of a better term you know it's 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 one that you sit there and the more you think about it the more you pick it apart you're like oh hmm curious interesting you could teach teach classes on this game's approach to design and how every aspect of it is tied back to the concept of game design itself like and and, and we're not even into the parts yet that i think are the most overt are the most obvious the most glaring like we are doing this thing uh in the way that only near as a series can do (laughs) but uh it's it's really cool in the mansion here. I, I love that you pointed out, Tatum, the the fact that you don't have a dodge roll here because it is a very tangible uh like loss of a gameplay element, but if viewed through the lens of you are losing this thing to call and it calls attention to it, like the absence of it calls attention to it, calls attention to the fact that it itself is a reference on top of all the other things that this game is doing in the section from the camera angle to the the layout of the mansion itself like the the entrance way is feels very obviously like the spencer mansion oh uh, with yeah. that staircase running down the middle and mm-hmm. all that the banisters up above and then the <laughs> fact that throughout this whole section you're kind of picking up these keys and using them to unlock doors and they're all labeled after things like moon and light and darkness that like feels very resident evil I, even the portraits changing i i don't remember if that was a resident evil thing it's been long enough that i can't recall if that was a resident evil one thing but it does feel very re or, or survival horror in general uh and i mean we we have like quote unquote scare moments where you walk into a room and kaine is no longer there or you walk by a door and a voice calls out to you and stuff like that like it is this is a horror segment within yeah near uh which i think then builds up its broader idea as you delve further into the mansion and start to kind of figure out that there's aside from the the supernatural hijinks going on there is something that really did happen here because eventually after unlocking enough doors and and moving through enough areas and, and dealing with some shades we get to a garden and there are statues here uh stone statues that uh near mentions looks like they're in pain um, and as he heads inside, uh, we find a young blind boy playing a piano, uh, who can tell that near is a male, not even 20, not even 20 can. Sounds fake. <laughs> and, and also cannot hear grimoire vice because grimoire vice is floating, which I thought was, was fun. Um, and we, we find out that this is. Emil, the the master of the manor, and also has not been sending Yona letters. Dun dun dun. <laughs> very um very funny uh reveal of oh my god, he's not where are the letters coming from? Um but we we try to approach him and he steps back saying that anything he looks at gets turned to stone, which is why he wears uh a blindfold. Uh so he's he's wondering what's up. We're wondering what's up. We get given a skeleton key and a map and told to find his butler who has vanished. Um, 
And so we do find that there is a uh, fake butler, a statue butler, which is really goofy. I still don't know why they did that. Why did they do the statue butler? Is that just like I, he's a not goof? a he's he's not a statue though. He's an idol animation. He's like just a husk. Yeah, but, yeah. There are a few things in this section that I don't feel like got a off, which I don't, you know, especially like in like supernatural horror. Like I don't think you need mm -hmm. to pay off everything, but it was just like the the fake butler, the portraits changing. I guess like more than anything, those are like tone setters that something fucked up is happening here, um, yeah. which we'll get to. Yeah, I guess like that in itself, in, a, in and of itself is the payoff. Is it like, oh, there are shades here that are fucking up the place and it is manifesting in a lot of weird shit. Yeah, it's it's a lot of strange happenings. And I feel like the general idea is just to convey like, oh, like house is haunted, you know? Right. And and I mean, what what is a haunted house in a ghost story, but just a like manifestation of you know, deep-seated narrative traumas that are lurking below in a way to, like, manifest them in the world and show them, you know, not to get all what is horror, horror mm. 101 over here, but uh, a lot of times the, you know, ghosts, hauntings, manifestations in these movies and films and whatever are just ways of expressing internalized trauma that a character might be feeling, which... I mean, we're about to figure out. I mean, we can already surmise at this point that Emil probably feels if we can just interpret that the people in the courtyard did not just suddenly turn into stone for no reason. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> that Emil probably already feels a certain way about the way the way that he has to live in that manner and and what what he does uh, to people with his eyes. Um. So we do looking around we find out that the butler who we finally discover um is responsible for the letters to yona he wants to help emil and heard about Nier's heroics uh and thought we could help but yona responded back instead yona does open we, other people's mail yeah yeah committing light felonies light misdemeanors mm -hmm. really you know, but eh, it might be a felony actually i don't know US law. don't don't come to normandy for legal advice for we sure. can't provide that near Afghan does not take place in america so who's to say maybe they don't have laws about hey opening hey mail. no the facade, law facade has laws facade has I, laws. I said about opening mail <laughs> i i bet you facade has a thing about opening a letter oh absolutely they oh absolutely they chop people's fingers it. off for that shit <laughs> they put them in the saw traps mm -hmm. if you open someone else's letters um anyways uh, Weiss wants to leave, but the butler says that uh, the location for a cure uh, is is located in a shade den. So it sounds like we might be able to help Neil out. It sounds like something we should get up to. Uh, so Nier, the hero, agrees to do it. And Emil rolls with us, and we finally have another party member, Emil, able to turn things to stone so we can one hit KO them, which is actually pretty rad. Uh big fan of Emil's talents here, especially as we're unable to dodge roll around this area. Which um, I did I did like that it felt like a you know, I mean it has obviously story ramifications, but like it in terms of mechanically, it felt like a direct response to the thing that we've lost. So he felt like it actually mm -hmm. very tangibly useful. Yeah, yeah. I, I also think this is, like, such an incredible introduction of Emil as a character. Like, mm. immediately you are introduced to him as, like, this timid, soft-spoken boy who just wants to be polite and make life easier for others. And mm. the moment that he realized that someone in his vicinity is making life potentially harder for someone else, he's like, hey, why would you do that? I never asked you to do that. Why would yeah. you think that that's it? Like he has such this strong moral compass, like off the bat, and it's not like in an off-putting way. It's just in such a heartwarming. Like Emil is genuinely too pure for anything happening in the world of Near, and deserves nothing uh, but good things to happen to him. Yeah, Emil is very much like just from this outset that we get here. Like very much does not want to put upon others. Um, is just wants to like stay sequestered away in the oh, manner like me for real yeah like, like he if you think about it there's a cure like a cure for his condition that has caused pain and caused him pain that he could theoretically ask other people to help him find in his haunted infested manner and instead he's been like no nah, no nah, i'm good i'll just i'll just stay over here playing piano it's it's, it's fine 
I'm good. He doesn't, he doesn't want to cause problems for anybody. Yeah. I can, re- I can relate. Yeah, and it's it's very sweet. Namil is a very sweet boy. Um, this game, but... it, it does such an excellent job of all of its character introductions. Like, the first moment with Weiss, first moment mm-hmm. with Kaine. Like, mm-hmm. those are mm-hmm. so iconic uh, introductions. Yeah, and, and don't worry. We'll have some iconic Kaine moments in a moment just hell, here. Hell yeah! Um. So we, we keep moving through the whole whole area. More pictures are warping. Shades are spawning. Emil is blasting them into stone, and we're smashing them up. We finally find our way towards the the library, and Emil says the cure should be nearby. Vice gets bad vibes, and a book rips out of the library. And this is not important to note, the, the grimoire noir that we have been searching for. Uh, this is just a different magic book. Uh just a magic book that was hanging out in, so is that, in the library. Is that going to be like relevant that there are more of these books that do that same shit? Uh, I'm going to be honest with you, Ken. Cannot remember. So probably not. Okay. <laughs> I that, think that this was, is just a case of another magic book. Because I was thinking it felt like very like unceremonious that something very similar to Vice was here. And they, they had like a, you know, a mention of it, but nobody like made a huge fuss about it. So I was like, I don't know, maybe I'm misunderstanding like the significance of these things. I, I think I think what the fight is kind of meant to do is kind of make you start questioning what you know because you all all that you were aware of is that there were these two books mm-hmm. and there's a prophecy around them but then you just ran into a third book and no one really knows much about it so they just kill it and I I think it's just worth kind of like sitting on that and thinking not so much will it pop up again yes or no later but like what does that mean in relation of the information of the world that we have so far like i like the idea of it being like oh you the the things that you know about this world there's only like there's a small sliver of this world that you know and can comprehend and understand exactly it it did just seem like the fact that nobody really even sat with that for very long just seemed like weird to me given how basically well now that I, i know what happens in the next episode the these books seem so central to world mm-hmm. as far as i can tell that like Near- this third one existed and just like nobody like everyone nobody really pondered it for very long just seemed kind of but i, I also I think that's yeah but i also think that's like a really good characterization of near because near as a character like isn't really one to sit and ponder those things nears like someone's points near in a direction he says okay i'm gonna go stab that direction i'll be back later mm-hmm. like I I think that is perfectly in line with like Nier's character and he like he's not very caught up in the details. The only detail he cares about is Yona, and that's like mm. all he needs to drive him forward. Yeah, yeah. The thing I will say and to more directly answer your question and not like beat around the bush is that yes, it is somewhat significant that there is a book that is a little bit different, but also not too dissimilar from Grimoire Vice that is hanging out in this library. But for all intents and purposes, in the context of our playthrough right now, we don't really need to talk about it. We can talk about it more in the much later episode where we talk about all the extended lore of Near. Which oh man, yeah, yeah this this is my way. Like like I'm I'm telling you right now, I literally pulled the wiki page up just to like reaffirm my my knowledge. Yeah, that that yes, this is like. It's a thing, but it's not like a thing thing, and you don't need to worry about it in the context of near replicant right now. Yeah, uh, that is true. That, that's a uh, way far down the line. <laughs> um. Anyways, uh, we, we fight this book, and so honestly, so this is an interesting part of the game because I think this is where the game starts finally trying to get you to stop using some of the stuff that you might have gotten used to using all the time. So like Dark Blast is an obvious one because Dark Blast is essentially ineffective against this boss. Like the the shield it has bounces all the bullets off, doesn't do any damage. Um and so I remember like this was the the fight where I was like, oh I have to start using other spells like Dark Lance, Dark Hands. Um I had to start like paying attention to the magic that I was using because I couldn't just machine gun every enemy um ken how did you feel about this particular boss fight yeah i mean when you pointed because when, when y'all watched me play it that was something you pointed out i realized how much of a habit immediately like shooting that 
has become to me like I've got my DualSense Edge, uh, and I've got like the uh, the the fire button on one of the back paddles, and I just kind of like hold it down in the middle of the fight as I do everything <laughs> else. It, it, I didn't even really process it until you pointed out like, oh, you realize those are like bouncing off that shield, right? And I was like, oh, I guess they are. It was just it you just, just like continued a... to shoot anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, if, if it's a net zero change, then I might as well like just keep going. To, to be to be fair, it does feel really good to just hold it that shoot button. It does. It, it does. I don't do that. Um, but I I also like realized when you said that I was like I actually don't think I've ever really sat down to figure out how to use other spells in this game. I, so. Dark Lance is a pretty easy one. It's it's essentially. The same as Dark Blast, but instead of just having a machine gun fire that you can then like let go to launch off a burst of shots, uh, you charge up and then unleash a bunch of spears. Uh, so you'll like be kind of charging it up as you're running around and slashing and stuff, and then when you let go, it launches however many spears you have charged up. But it's generally a bit more powerful than Dark Blast. Like it has a little bit more punch to it. Uh, I found it useful for later on once you start dealing with heavier enemies. Uh, mm -hmm. And then Dark Hand, I think, is the one where you have to, like, stay stationary for it. And you charge up this big fist, but it ends up doing this really big attack uh, for his enemies. And I found that really, really useful for some of the more powerful enemies and also the moments in which you can, like, stun a boss and then get, like, really big hits on them. It tends to do more than, say, like, a burst of Dark Blast or, or Dark Lance or something like that. But I, I will say that as much as I love how cool all the magic in this game looks. I do find a lot of the magic to be pretty inconsequential at the yeah. end of the day. So, uh, I mean, the same thing was true in Nier Automata as well with the pod weapons. I felt like the pod weapons were very even more so afterthought. Yeah. Um, and I, I like some of the pod ideas and stuff. And, and when we get to Nier Automata, we'll talk about the ways in which I think that game has a really cool and interesting build system and, and the ways in which I think it very much improves on a lot of the ideas of near replicant and, and builds on them. But uh, yeah, yeah. I think the pod weapons and, and by extension, the magic, the grimoire, the grimoire vice stuff is actually a little bit more interesting even than the pod weapons were, but yeah, uh, we fight a book. The book dashes around and bumps into us. Occasionally we fight some shades along with it, but we beat a book up. We love to fight books. Eventually, at some point, a shield comes up and Kaine runs in to help us and lays into the the enemy with profanity because that is the way of Kaine. Um, we love her for it. Uh, I do love the moment where Emil is like, "Oh, just, just leave! I'll just leave me behind." And Kaine's like, "Shut up!" <laughs> <laughs> you're looking to like sacrifice yourself just like talk about it some other time let's just fight this book <laughs> um we beat it up it falls apart but one of the pages that falls down after we beat the book up is is research on petrification and so boy that does seem like something that might help emil out but this hypothetical piece of info that could help emil is described in a code, so we can't really figure out what it says right now. Uh, and so the butler, Sebastian, not Jeeves, kind of, uh, Sebastian shows up and vows to decipher the code for a meal. Uh, and then we get what I think is honestly probably the highlight of this episode. Mm -hmm. uh, as we are leaving the manor, notably near and vice walk away. And they were kind of like waiting by the gate and we get a moment of Kaine speaking to Emil, uh, which I think in and of itself is already very interesting because up to this point, we've kind of seen everything through Nier's eyes. Like everything has been very focused around Nier. And so to have a moment that that separates out and is about mm -hmm. Kaine and Emil specifically is really cool. Um, but Kaine is like, hey, look, your eyes are not a sin. Like they're a part of you. And like that's that's okay and you can still be a good person because of that and she lets emil kind of like feel the scrawl on her arm uh and and uh kine or emil asks kine if she's a shade and she says um i thought this was a curse and basically like i took this curse upon myself to enact my revenge and like i was cool with whatever happened after that just happened and i was going to accept that but then um, you know, recently I started to change my mind, kind of gesturing towards near advice, but then she 
leans into Emil's ear and whispers, uh, like, if if the curse starts to overtake me, and then whispers in Emil's ear, and, and Emil is like, no, and says, I won't give up, and you can't either. Um, really powerful moment between these characters. Tatum, how do yeah. you feel about it? Um, there's not a better duo than Kaine and Emil. <laughs> they will, they will, they are true allies to each other. They are incredible. Um, I also think that like the way Kaine approaches it is the mo- this like is probably correct me if I'm wrong. This might be like the most like the softest we've seen Kaine. Oh, since yeah. we've known oh, yeah. her, like suddenly all of her walls are like dropped and gone, and she's just a real ass person with Emil in this moment. And even Grimoire Vice is like, "What was that about?" And she just immediately walls her back up. She says something about mm-hmm. like shoving it up his book ass or whatever. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like um, it's it's such a good one. Continue like nice little like bow on the introduction of Emil as a character and it is a great moment for Kaine to like further develop and get to know her a little bit more and like what things are important to her other than killing the shit out of shades yeah I had a stray thought when I saw this scene um and it obviously like you don't have to tell me like deep spoilers or anything but like does Yona get moments with Kaine and Emil because Something that I'm thinking about now is that, like, Yona is very sequestered from everybody else often. And that's, that's like, Nier's like, hey, can you keep sending her letters? Because, like, I think she, like, really enjoys having that person to talk to. Whereas the person that she interacts with most in this world is Nier, just, like, by necessity. But she doesn't have a lot of companionship with people that might feel like her. Like, a lot of um, people that are, like, you know, in similar situations where, where like, Kaine and Emil have this really lovely moment together where they're, like, even if they're not, like, completely you know, the same in terms of their afflictions, they at least know what it's like to feel like something that is intrinsically a part of you is also a curse and something that you are suffering because of. I don't feel like we've, at the point, gotten a lot of insight into how Yona feels beyond, like, like she is sick, clearly. Like, that is, that is, like, her primary emotion that we tend to feel, is that, like, she is, in spite of how she feels and how deadly this thing has become, like, she still wants to be there for her brother and I, I think, you know, it is very much, uh, I think it's a very natural thing to feel not not a burden to other people and that you want to contribute in some way. And, you know, we saw it even as far back as, like, the very first scene in this game where she, like, was a cookie that she found or something. And she's like, hey, I wanted you to have this, even though I'm, I'm sick, I still don't want to be this, like, you know, soul-sucking thing to you. Whereas, I mean, I'm kind of having this conversation where they are both coming from a very similar like lived experience of this is my affliction but it does not have to be cursed and i just wondered if yona has any sort of like fellowship in that way curious thought indeed <laughs> mm. um, much to think about much to consider yeah yeah we'll mm. revisit that later we'll revisit that okay um uh one thing i did want to bring up i, I know this is kind of cheating because uh, we're we're talking about stuff that is not within the bounds of this episode, but it's it's shortly after. But basically, one thing that I've always felt about Replicant, and I think I felt again watching Ken play this section and then the section after it, like immediately back to back, is I do kind of wish this scene happened a little bit earlier in the first half of this game, uh, because I think. It really, it, it's the moment to me that it feels like we lock in our, our like core cast, like mm. the party has been formed, so to speak. We, I, I will just say now, like we have seen all of our primary players in the story at this point, but I do think there's like a very noticeable jump from Emil's here and as a character to like we are moving into the next section of the story. Right, the pacing uh, is very rushed it feels in this like yeah section yeah where where i almost would have enjoyed the idea of seeing the this whole moment that really like solidifies our core cast happen before maybe like 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 somewhere between facade and some of the other stuff that we have done that that if you just kind of like reconfigured all of the steps of this and changed the order of them around a little bit the whole pacing would flow a little bit more naturally 
and, and it does make me a little bit curious about why it is all laid out in that way, especially once we get into the next section. But uh, I do, there, there's something about, it, it's hard to talk about because I do feel like this, this cast goes on a journey, even mm. from where we are now. And uh, it's, it's hard to talk about them as they are at the end of that journey versus as they are here. But I think one of the things that strikes me the most early on is just how quickly they begin to endear themselves to one another. Um, you feel like a very instant connection between these characters, the way that they uh, bond over what uh, things they share. Like, Ken, you were talking about uh, Kaine senses that that sort of um, hurt in a meal that, that she can understand and and tries to to help him out as someone who understands it very well uh and near in in his own way is like tries to be very compassionate tries to be very helping to emil even though emil does not want him to be uh there's there's just a lot of aspects of this crew here that feels like they they come together very fast but mm -hmm. i do like how they are their own persons they are their own characters with their own ideas and ideals but they they form a really interesting party very fast and and i feel like the the manor episode really sums that up well um yep. any closing thoughts here tatum about what what we have discussed here today about the manor about emil uh, as, as we've now met emil or, or just kind of like vibes about this whole section so uh, this is more of a broad question than it is like tied specifically to this section although it is kind of absolutely toss it out have y'all discussed the differences between dad near and brother near yet? Mm, we we haven't too much to be honest not, yeah not in any like super concentrated way um because i don't have a lot of context but yeah so to i i would say this like section is kind of where the vibes and kind of like the way things land are like they feel very different depending on which version of the game that you're playing because uh you know whenever you first meet near and whenever or whenever emil first meets near and whenever they are uh kind of leaving the manor and kaine and emil are having that moment i feel like if it's dad near in those situations it comes off very differently but not in a bad way just a way that may land like harder for others uh, and then from this point on forward, I feel like it continues to what you continue to get those moments of like, oh, this scene hits a lot differently if it is like dad near who is fighting to save his daughter as opposed to his sister. And he is like a guy in his like 40s or 50s um, going for the same thing. So what I was curious of is how y'all feel this uh this scene might be different if dad near were were inserted into it uh, or, or any any scenes that you have previously already been through up to this point i I'll, I'll just start out to say that like this scene in particular i do feel like this section probably feels very different with dad near versus um versus brother near because I do think there's something to be said about the idea that like a dad near would see himself as like wanting to be protective of Emil who, who is very similar in, in age to yep. Yona and that immediately like creates a more solid connection versus like brother near who just kind of wants to be a hero, almost just yep. kind of wants to play hero. Um, it, it's another one's bad. It's just two very different tones. Exactly. And tenors. I, I do feel like there's, there's a Joel Miller aspect to father near that that works very well in some situations so i'll kind of expand it out here to broadly say that like i think when it comes to anything involving yona the dad near stuff is more effective but anything involving the party the like traveling crew that we have here uh i think brother near is more effective and i think mm. that becomes even more apparent in part two but uh mm. even in part one I, I like Brother Near as this sort of trying to be the like like he is trying to be a parental figure to his younger sister and as an older brother I find that compelling in its own way like obviously I've I've had I, I never had to act as a parental figure for for my siblings but um 
there's there's something about like the sibling who has to take care of their younger sibling that that can be really effective and compelling in its own way but uh, i do think that father near adds a really interesting dimension to that in a pre last of us world um versus like i think when you're talking about the relationship between say kindy and near or even emil and near uh, i find that a little bit more interesting with brother near involved especially when we get into part two but that's that's for much later on to talk about so i won't get too in depth yeah yeah, yeah. That. but for sure yeah I, I broadly think like dad near versus brother near is interesting as a like discussion point for sure and we'll even be talking more about that within the replicant season because they somehow managed to tie that into the story of replicant in the most bizarre way it's so uh, weird it's really it's bizarre. so weird <laughs> I have no um, idea what you're talking about. I, I I cannot wait for for us to do that part, Ken. I have to figure out when we're going to do that because that's I got to map out our side quests for part two because that is a, a side quest. But mm-hmm. um, it's I, it's wild. I'm I'm wondering what other like future guests will say as well. So I don't know if you want this mm-hmm. to be like your guest question of like Titus or Titus or your yeah. dad or brother, daddy near or brother near. I'd not consider that as a potential question. Because I personally, I'm team dad near. I like dad near a lot more. I think Ooh. a lot of the scenes ring a lot better. Some of them are way goofier, but I think it like is entirely in favor of the tone and like of the game itself overall. It's I love dad near a lot. You know what? And maybe we should make this a recurring thing that we ask because because we have not had we've not had this opportunity yet. Mm. We've not been doing this up to this point. We could have been asking this question. We we only asked it of ourselves up to this point, but now Tatum has brought something new to the podcast. Well, it's I a good think, thing that for we, the span figured, of your replicant. I would say yeah. it's a good thing that we figured this out in the first guest episode of the season because we haven't had anybody else on yet. So exactly, we we only could have asked ourselves every episode, but now now we have a new new thing to venture into. It is all Tatum's fault. <laughs> you're you're welcome question i i was ready to take credit until you said it was my fault and that mm. made me suddenly realize oh no maybe maybe i've done something bad mm. yeah dad or brother at the top of every podcast is going to be an interesting uh way to just really <laughs> drop mm-hmm. people on the deep end uh ken how about you first of all ken mm-hmm. daddy or brother i don't know daddy i never i never mm. i know mm. i know nothing of this man i'd mm. like I, not even just mm-hmm. I was gonna say, just imagine, like everything that you've been through with Near, but he is like in his late forties. I need, I need to share you an image of Dad Near. I need the live reaction to an image of Dad Near, uh, because I, I don't think Ken. I'm trying to find one that is not going to be a spoiler either. But I, I sent one to Ken. Like I think it was the, from the box art forever ago, but I doubt he remembers it. Uh, I'm putting it in the Discord right now. Hmm. Uh, that's not doing much for me. I do think this this particular interpretation of Dad Near is slightly better, but yeah, that's usually what he looks like, right, with the eye patch. Yeah, yeah. No. I forget how the the eye patch huh. factors in specifically. Yeah, like, I, I forgot too. Like I don't know, I don't know this man, but just like looking at him, I feel like if he were in all of these scenes that I have played thus far, I feel like the vibes would just be different. Um, yeah, they would be. You're right. And not in a way that's why it's be so like, cool. Well, I don't know. Like, that's the thing is, I don't know. I don't know. Like, because like my immediate like knee jerk reactions, like I don't know that I would be feeling a lot of these as much. Especially like this final, this last thing that we did with Emil and Kaine is that like when I see Brother Near in this scene and Kaine is going off to, like the side to go talk to somebody else, like immediately my brain is like. Kanye wants to talk to this person separately because they are of they have very similar lived experience right now. Where Dad near it more, I, I feel like my knee jerk reaction would be she wants to talk to somebody that's like more her contemporary, more like her, uh, you know, in terms of like age and you know, where she's like, okay, we the youths over here are going to go talk about something away from the old man, uh, who doesn't get us, like doesn't you know, and again, like I I don't know like the tone of dad near as a character because i mean eric has told me that they are mostly the same they are Um, exactly the same ken the dialogue is mm -hmm. not different at all 
They are the exact same character, except one of them is in their late teens, and one of them is in their late 40s. Well, they're actually both a thousand-something years old, so, like, what's the real difference now? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I I would be interested. I, I guess, like, that, that's one of the things that you can never experience the same way twice, because, like, obviously, like, I've been playing as Brother Near for all this, so I'm never really going to get that initial experience of playing the game as Dad Deer. Right. Um, so I guess that's just something to always ponder. Like, what would my reaction to these things be if they were with a different character? It's it's interesting, and I... It's, God, a, fun thought ex- it's a fun thought experiment. There's, there's also so much to, like, delve into around, because, I mean, we haven't even talked about Drakengard 3, really, in this podcast, and we probably won't talk about Drakengard 3 until the end of this podcast, but, like, yeah. there's some weird ways in which... <laughs> father versus brother plays back into the potential like other storylines and timelines of near and things like that that like get kind of wonky so it's overall it's just kind of funny to like look at as this was a weird thing that ultimately stemmed from this weird belief that uh you could not market the original version of this game aka uh near replicants uh the the like near version uh, that that we are playing here the version of year that we were playing here uh in america and so they had to create near papa near also referred to as i think near gestalt sometimes yeah um well that was the they, name of the version in japan with him in it was near gestalt yeah yeah so they actually sold two different versions in, in japan and just had the one version over here yeah that's that's so wild it's so bizarre to me <laughs> but yes it's uh, so weird that's like it adds to like the enigmatic like nature of this game and like even it's like production and like retail journey was like weird and not traditional and just like this game just went through a lot to exist and it came out just really weird on the other side and we all really love it for it it really did go through a lot, which is kind of weird to think about in terms of like Yoko Taro, who arguably I won't say has like a blank check for the next game he works on, but certainly has like earned a lot of goodwill up to this point. Um, I mean, this was not just Yoko Taro. Um, I'm quoting to, directly from the near wiki on fandom here uh, which is a paraphrase of the original story but um there were staff that criticized uh having a skinny boy swinging around a giant sword in a serious narrative and wanted a realistic hero uh to better appeal to adult players in the west um and it was uh both uh, yosuke saito and yoko taro who eventually like had to capitulate to make it happen um uh and and it became a bit of a tension point but they did eventually make this version uh it's so weird that now we look at yoko taro at post near automata now probably has a blank check for whatever comes next right Mm. like has this goodwill that has been earned up over all these games and to some extent, you got to wonder what the next Yoko Taro game looks like, right? You got to wonder how does that come forward? How does that live up to expectations and certainly expectations at Square Enix that are probably pretty high? Um, but I, I, I love Nier for what it is, which is this weird, strange, different game that at some times does stuff that does not always feel great, like make you walk through weird fixed camera angles because they just wanted a vibe in a mansion. (laughs) But I love that this game just wants to put you in a vibe for a game segment and then just like takes you right out of it. It's like, okay, we're on to the next thing. And yeah, what was, wasn't that fun? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, Hey, we're going to do a thing for a little bit. And you're going to be like, oh, this is neat. And then we're also not going to make that the whole game. It's just a part of the game. I, I think that's what I like the most about Near Replicant is it it does these slices, but it does them ever so carefully, ever so contained within the sections that they're in. So The, the only game I could ever, ever compare 
to near replicant would be demon souls because they do the exact same thing of like, here's these really like odd and different unique experiences that were like a one-off thing that we did for a little bit. And now we're moving on to the next one and it's going to be completely different and you're not going to be able to guess what it is. But at the end of it all, it all just ties together in this like one of a kind, never seen before packages. What a video game. What an incredible video game. Tatum, thank you so much for guesting today. Thanks where for having the, me. Where can the folks at home follow you and all the wonderful things you do on the internet? Oh, please don't. Um, okay, don't perceive uh, data. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, I I can be found on uh, most social media sites as No Way Tatum. On Blue Sky, it's just Tatum. I was able to get that one. Oh, we love um, to see it. We, we do love to see that. Am I still Moosey on Blue, Blue Sky? Did I go with that? I mean, I would be shocked what else if would you have done anything different. Am I just yeah. committing to the brand, even though it's not really a brand? Committing to it if thing. you haven't been doing it for as long as I've known you. But y'all don't, y'all don't know me as Seamoosey, though. Yeah, but the internet does. I guess. I don't, I don't really think. I think people just know me by my name now. Would it be really weird if I just started calling you Moosey and just acted like it's what I've always called you? Uh, it 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 would be weird. <laughs> But also, <laughs> huh? I don't know. Think on that. Consider that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I want to just be Moosey now. Um, you can be whatever you want to be. This is this is the future. This, yeah, this is the future. Um. Or anyway, like a, a few thousand or two years from where we used to be, you know. Mm. Yo, hold the fuck on. Hold the fuck on. Something just occurred to me. Mm-hmm. There's a point where Brother Near says he's mm-hmm. too young to drink. What yep. does what does Dad Near say? Oh, oh, it's probably localized differently, huh? Mm. Yeah, maybe he's just like I don't want to drink or something. Or I, the dialogue I don't is drink. different. Yeah, it's it's different in probably subtle places, um, but n- not in a in any significant way. As if it really oh. fucking matters. They're both a thousand years old. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is accurate. Um, yeah. Anyways, that's Tatum. Thanks. We're Norm. We're we're Normandy FM. We are a retrospective podcast in which we have recapped multiple different series, including Mass Effect, Dragon Age, Last of Us, Jade Empire was in there somewhere, <laughs> and uh, Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven. And we are currently on Near Replicant. Final Fantasy X found dead in a ditch. Oh God! Right. Look, we have done so many games now. <laughs> I'm going to have to start keeping a list in front of me of them. But if you want to help us out, if you want to back us, you can head to patreon.com slash normdfm and donate to our little tip jar there. Every little bit helps in keeping the lights on and helping us do really dumb stuff here. And every episode, if you back us at the highest level, you get your name shouted out on the pod. And this episode, that list is John Warren, Andrea Sheeran, Joshua Jarvis, Seth Pitts, Darius Pippins, Shane Erickson, Cypress Catwell, and Christoph Weiss. Thank you all so much for contributing to what we do here. And if you want to follow us, you can always follow us at Normandy FM Show on the website formerly known as Twitter. Ken's there as Shepard CDR, and I'm there at CMoosey, which is apparently just my name now. <laughs> Next Yo, episode. What's up? What's up, Tato? I was going to say shout outs to Pippins. What a good name. Shout to Pippins. Yeah, shout outs to Pippins. We do love Pippins. Lord of the Rings, Normandy FM. When? You know? We talk about Viggo Mortensen breaking that toe. <laughs> Alright, we gotta in- get out of here. <laughs> yeah, until next time, we'll be taking ourselves all the way into the final part of part one of Near Replicant. There'll be another doozy with another fantastic guest. And we'll probably have a lot to talk about. But until then, for Tatum... For Ken, for myself, thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Normandy FM.